take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts in chapter 19. I'm going to read a portion together. We've been enjoying going through the book of Acts in detail. And let me uh, open with a, a quick uh, challenge to you, a, ch- a question to you. The question is, does the devil know who you are? Does the devil know your name? That sounds a bit of a spooky question. So I hope he doesn't, or doesn't think about me too often. But there may actually be a very good reason why the devil would know who you are. See, the devil doesn't know everything. He doesn't know everybody. Um, Certainly doesn't know everything about everybody. Uh, We would have to be introduced to him in some way. And there would really be two ways that we would be introduced to him. One is by uh, rendering some service to him, and I hope that's not where you're at. And the other would be to engage him in warfare, to be of irritation to the devil. This is another way that we might come to be known by the devil. The passage today is about uh, a, uh, a conflict between human beings and the powers of the devil. And we will see that there are those who are known by the devil and there are those who are not known. And it is uh, ironic to see that the ones who are not known are the ones who wish they were and the ones who are known are the ones who are the great heroes of the text. So let's read the text together and you'll see where we're headed. So verse 11 of Acts chapter 19. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I enjoy you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognise, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, uh, fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had been practicing, who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value uh, of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's just pray together as we look at this portion of Scripture. Father, we thank you for this inspired record of the mighty and extraordinary works of your servant and apostle, Paul. Lord, I pray that we look at this with great wisdom, that we apply and take from it all that it would have for us, and that we understand it properly within its special context. And Lord, that we would be built up in our daily struggle against the forces of darkness, that the devil might come to know our name 
and tremble because we are part of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we dealt with a, uh, a passage that has been really used and abused uh, in many ways to do with the, the timing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When does a person get baptised in the Holy Spirit? We talked about that last week. Also the uh, misunderstanding to do with handkerchiefs and aprons and all that. You know, we, we talked about that last week and I don't want to go through that uh, in detail except to say that I think that uh, the main point to take from that, since we read it at the beginning of this portion, is to recognise not a, a normative pattern for the church. I don't think we're supposed to share handkerchiefs with each other and expect them to have some special healing power. But that Paul did it and it happened in his ministry because these handkerchiefs and aprons were themselves signs of the gospel. This is the point we made last week. Uh, the, the handkerchief was probably a, a kind of a, a headscarf that was uh, keeping the sweat out of his eyes. And the apron, of course, was something you would have worn in uh, labouring, as he would have in Ephesus, to pay his way. And the sweat from his body would have accumulated in these items and they would have been taken to various people and they were laid on them and, and healing took place through them. And I suggested that this was a sign of the gospel because as these items would have come to the individuals, they would have noticed that these symbols, these handkerchiefs, were in fact signs of labour and toil that has been done by somebody else that they might be blessed through the gospel. This is the work that Paul has done in order to bring the gospel to them. This is what I think it symbolised. I think it's the best way to understand this extraordinary, and the word extraordinary is used, Extraordinary being the opposite of ordinary or normative or something that we would expect to happen on a regular basis. These uh, extraordinary signs by which handkerchiefs could be used as symbols of the gospel of healing. People will be healed through them, pointing to the greater miracle of healing through the free work of the gospel. Amen. That was my take on it. You might be wiser than me. You might have thought of something more clever than that, but I thought that was pretty good. So we come now, though, to another uh, passage which uh, is also used and abused um, to talk about deliverance ministry, to talk about uh, exorcisms, as it's uh, often referred to. Uh, exorcism being the word that's used in this passage. You've got these Jewish exorcists. Uh, in fact, this is actually the only place in the New Testament that that word is used. Exorcism or exorcist, and it's... Uh, based on that, that the ministry of exorcism is uh, based today. Now, in approaching this text, we really need to make a number of uh, introductory comments to just lay the scene and get a sense of what's really going on here. I want to just talk about, very quickly, what demons are. I want to talk about the role, of, the role that they play in salvation history. Uh, so these are just introductory comments, and they do play a, a significant role in salvation history, which is very important, especially around the ministry of Jesus. And I want to make a couple of comments about deliverance ministry today. So just by way of introduction, what are demons? Let's just quickly answer that. We need to uh, have in mind, when God first created the world, he didn't simply create an earthly realm and populate it with physical beings. He also created a heavenly realm and populated it with spiritual beings. 
Consequently, or subsequently, there was a fall. And a fall not simply in the earthly realm, which we know a great deal about from the scriptural account, whereby all humanity fell into sin. There was also a heavenly fall, uh, of which we know far less about, where a portion of heavenly angelic beings fell into sin. So we hear Jesus mention things like uh, in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, we've got verses like Jude, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, and angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. In 2 Peter conveys a similar idea. So we have uh, this presentation to us in Scripture of what uh, demons are. And all through biblical history and indeed church history, uh, there is this uh, satanic presence behind the scenes and often in the forefront and this battle that does go on uh, between the um, people of God and satanic forces. In fact, this was predicted in the very first gospel presentation in Genesis 3.15, where we are told that the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the seed of the snake, and that this would proceed through history, and that the seed of the woman, one seed in particular, would triumph over the serpent, crushing his head as he bruised his heel. We see that as a reference to Jesus Christ. So demons and Satan are very much present throughout the Bible. They are in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But there is a major change that takes place in the New Testament with regard to deliverance ministry and with regard to the presence of demons. See, one of the um, most interesting and unique features of Jesus' ministry was his authority demonstrated regularly casting out demons. See, Jesus did many miracles, uh, but one that shocked people perhaps more than others was his capacity to cast out demons. See, this hadn't really been the pattern before. People in the Old Testament would have prayed against demonic forces and so on, but you don't see this, this whole-scale attack this authority given to Christ and then through Christ to the apostles of being able to command evil spirits to come out. And people are uh, genuinely surprised and shocked when they see this start happening in the New Testament. And so, for example, Mark in chapter 1, verse 27, when Jesus casts out uh, the, the, the demon there, uh, they say, what is this? Is this some new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits and they uh, listened to him. And at once, fame spread throughout the region of this taking place. See, this power was unseen and unheard of before, this level of power. There were miracles throughout the Old Testament over um, sick people. Uh, there were miracles over nature, which Jesus again does. But throughout the Old Testament, you don't see the strong pattern of miracles of deliverance from evil spirits. That seemed to be something that was relatively new in the New Testament. Even the disciples were surprised 
when this was happening through their own hands. So when Jesus sends them out in Luke chapter 10, he sends them out to do three things, to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. But when they come back, what are they most excited about? They're excited because even evil spirits submit to us in your name. And then you have Jesus' amazing, come back to that, do not rejoice that the evil spirits submit to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus himself indicates the great significance of deliverance ministry when he says this in Luke 11. He says, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There was a special significance to the fact that deliverance ministry, that demonic um, uh, possession was being undone uh, at this time. And all of this is pointing to the fact that the snake crusher has arrived. That's what I think it's all pointing to. It is showing forth the victory that Christ is going to achieve over demonic powers and demonic forces, especially in his death and resurrection. So Colossians 2 and verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is the demons, and put them to open shame by trampling over them in him, Jesus Christ. So deliverance ministry in the New Testament is a sign pointing to Jesus as the one who would triumph over evil uh, uh, permanently. As the one who would triumph over the snake, as the one who binds the strong man. That's another picture that we get in Mark chapter 3. How can you plunder a man's house if you don't first bind the strong man and then you can go and plunder his house? Talking about Jesus' work binding Satan that he might plunder the Gentiles from uh, his grasp. This is what deliverance ministry was in the New Testament and what it was pointing to. And this is why I think when you come to the New Testament, you seem to get the impression that there is really a demon in every second person that Jesus meets, or behind every bush and under every rock. We ought not to extrapolate from that and assume that's the way it is now. There was a, uh, a lesson being taught here. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, we're told, 1 John 3, 8. This is all pointing to that victory. So then, how does this um, help us understand the role of deliverance ministry today? Well, I think there is such a thing as deliverance ministry today, but I don't think that it works the same way as it does in the New Testament. That is to say, I don't think there are individuals who have been given authority to simply speak to and command demons to be um, removed from a person. I think we do, exceed, we do see examples of demonic possession. Uh, in history, we certainly see that, and maybe even in our own lives and in our own experience. I don't think we would necessarily expect for these uh, demonically possessed individuals to always be foaming at the mouth and falling down and rolling around and throwing themselves into fires and this sort of thing that we see in the New Testament. It may be that they actually seem like very reasonable and very happy individuals. And I say that because everybody uh, who is an unbeliever, while they might look very happy and very uh, content, the Bible tells us they are in fact dead in sin and trespasses. And yet we see them walking, or, walking around alive and seemingly well. And in the same sense, I think it's true that a person could well be possessed, a 
person could well be affected in a significant way by demonic forces and still look relatively sane and normal. So Jesus and his apostles had this incredible power, this incredible authority that came to Jesus and was delegated to the apostles to command with their voice uh, demons to come out of people. I don't think we necessarily have that today. What do we have? Well, I think we go back to the standard pattern that we perhaps see more um, uh, true of the Old Testament pattern. I would say that the, the thing that we do with deliverance ministry today is we pray. Number one, we pray. It is a wonderful thing to do. And I think we share the gospel. I think that is what we ought to do in deliverance ministry. That maybe is the main thing we ought to do in deliverance ministry. Now, why do I say that? Well, because... Uh, it is clearly not possible for a Christian to be possessed by the devil. A Christian has the Holy Spirit within them. I don't imagine the Holy Spirit and the devil are happy neighbours within the temple of God. So I don't believe it is possible for a Christian to be possessed by the devil. I also think that if you're a non-Christian, there is no guarantee freedom from the devil apart from salvation through Jesus Christ. God might be nice to you. God might extend freedom to a certain degree from demonic impact. But the only way to be completely free, the only way to be completely sure that you are not possessed uh, by a devil is to come into Christ's kingdom. So how do we do deliverance ministry? Share the gospel. If somebody becomes a believer, then the deliverance aspect is downward. You're following me? Okay. Now all of this is still by way of introduction, by the way. All of this is to say that we now are stepping back, as we look at this text, into a unique moment in salvation history. Uh, demons were regularly being cast out in this moment uh, by authoritative declarations of the apostles under Christ's authority. And what we're going to see in this passage is not only that Paul is using this apostolic authority and that it is mighty in his hand, we're also going to see what can happen when people assume this apostolic authority but don't have it. Right? They end up bloodied and naked and beaten and very embarrassed. And that is a warning that we ought to take on today to assume things that are not true of you. To assume things, to assume power, to assume authority that you don't have. But the question then might come up, well, if this is a unique time in history, then what do we take from this passage? And here's the three points that I want to take from the passage. I want to talk about uh, what this tells us about the power of the sons of Sceva, uh, i.e. the power of unbelievers. What this tells us about the power of the sons of God and what this tells us about the power of God himself. So let's go through those points together. First of all, the power of the sons of Sceva. See, while Paul was um, using his apostolic power and authority in this passage to do these extraordinary miracles, healing, casting out evil spirits, we read of these seven sons, these seven men, sons of the high priest Sceva. Now, he almost certainly wasn't the real high priest, the one in Jerusalem. He was probably just a high-ranking priest, or it may even just be a bogus title that he gave himself. Okay. 
these seven sons are spoken of as itinerant exorcists, Jewish exorcists. Uh, as itinerant as in they travel around, they probably were maybe making money off of their so-called services, uh, going to individuals who may or may not have had uh, demonic possession and using their so-called talents to uh, remove these demonic forces from various individuals. Now this arises a, a question for us that's worth considering, and that is, do unbelievers have this power to cast out evil spirits? Because there are many unbelievers who are trying to do that, right? You've got witch doctors, you've got uh, cult leaders, you've even got some so-called pastors who are unbelievers but who are very much trying to do this. And I want to suggest to you that no, they do not have the power to cast out demonic spirits, even at this time. Uh, some people would actually say that they do, and they would say that they do based on verses like Matthew 7, 22, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And yet Jesus will say, I never knew you. Now, that's a reasonable case to be making, but I don't think that's what it means. I don't think they are, uh, I don't think they are necessarily uh, doing authentic miracles in that passage. I think that they are appearing to do so, or at least claiming to do so. But I wouldn't say that they are necessarily doing authentic miracles in the name of Jesus if they are unbelievers. Now, it may be that, as I said, God is nice to somebody, and God decides to, uh, through his providence, answer a so-called prayer on the made by an unbeliever. But while God may grant that success, there is certainly no guarantee or right to that success. And I certainly don't think that he granted success to the sons of Sceva. Why would we think that? Well, because of exactly what takes place. They say to this person who is possessed by a demon, we endure you, literally we exorcise you by the Jesus that Paul proclaims. And then the response, Jesus I knew, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognise. Who are you? Now that right there should have ended their career as exorcists, shouldn't it? <laughs> right? They have dedicated their entire lives to casting out demons, and now the very first time they actually meet a demon and have a conversation with them, the demon's like, sorry, who are you? <laughs> these, these guys are pathetic. This is embarrassing for them. And certainly we are to notice that in the text. They would have been going around shouting and screaming. They would have been going around with their potions or whatever it is from town to town, making money off the fact that they were casting out demons. And when they meet one, the demon has never heard of them. That's embarrassing. And to punish these uh, presumptuous and arrogant sons of Sceva for their stupidity, they get a sound beating. So they are beaten, they are bloodied, they are bruised, they are wounded, and they are stripped through the, uh, in the process, and they flee from the house uh, naked and badly injured. Now it's very tempting to laugh at that until you realise how close these individuals came to losing their lives at this encounter. They almost lost their lives because of two incredibly stupid mistakes that they made. The first mistake is they took the Lord's name in vain. Now you don't want to take the Lord's name in vain if you're about to come up against Satan. right? That, that makes sense. And second of all, they made themselves known 
to Satan previously had managed to go under the radar. And as a result, they were badly beaten. But notice that while it's plain that these evil spirits did not know who these sons of Sceva were, one of the reasons for this savage beating that they received is because of their attempt to drive out these evil spirits by two names, or by uh, yeah, two names, one name in particular, Jesus Christ, who these demonic forces were familiar with. Jesus I know, Paul I recognise, but who are you? See, it's not a bad thing, I want to suggest to you, to be known by the devil. As long as you are known to him as a son of God, rather than as a son of Sceva. See, they know who Jesus is. Oh, they know who Jesus is. For sure they know. They knew the very moment Jesus stepped into the world who this Jesus was. The very first encounter in Mark chapter 1 and verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? The demon said. Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. The Holy One of God. They know who Jesus was. When Jesus encounters the man in the tombs. He doesn't engage in some spiritual warfare. He doesn't start shouting and screaming and chasing the demon down and saying, come out, come out, come out. What happens? The demon sees Jesus and runs to him and falls down at his feet and begs him to not torment him. The demons know who Jesus is. They also know who Paul is. That man who was the greatest traitor to the kingdom of darkness. That man who led the satanic attack against God's church for those years has now become the leader of God's attack against the satanic forces that he once served. They know who Paul is. They hate Paul. Paul, that preacher, that church planter, that missionary, that apostle who wouldn't quit, who would take all the beatings, who would take all of the abuse and would get up and continue on. Satan knew who he was. And Satan hated who he was. So the devil knows who the sons of God are. He knows who the only begotten son of God is. And he knows who all the other sons of God are as well. The devil knows who his enemies are. He knows the ones who are the biggest threat to him. Who plunder his kingdom on a daily basis. He knows who they are. They are talked about in the corridors of his kingdom. They are whispered with hatred and venom between devils as they talk about their activity. The devil knows who the sons of God are. So let me ask you this. Does the devil know who you are? Have you annoyed him enough? Disturbed his activity enough? That if you were to encounter him, he would know your name. The greatest compliment that the devil could pay to a son of God is with venomous hatred admit to knowing who they are. Being hated by the forces of darkness is evidence that you are taking ground for the kingdom of God. So I wish that every member of the church was known by Satan. 
and was hated by Satan. But I wonder how many of us, I wonder how many true believers, if they ever did have a moment of conversation with the devil, would be known and would be hated the degree to which they ought to be. I wonder if we're just not that dangerous, that actually Satan just doesn't care that much about most believers. I want to read to you a quote from um, Jim Elliot. Some of you will know who that is. Jim Elliot was a, a missionary in Ecuador. Remember, they, there's a, a number of famous stories about him. He uh, flew over and dropped presents, and then he eventually parked the plane with his missionary friends, and they tried to reach out to an unreached people group and were killed, right? And their bodies were found downriver uh, days later. Uh, this is something that he said. He said, We are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace, while we profess to know a power that the 20th century does not reckon with. But we are harmless and therefore unharmed. Speaking about the church. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in high places. Meekness must be had for contact with men. But brash, outspoken boldness is required to take part in the comradeship of the cross. We are often sideliners, coaching and criticising the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. The world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. What's your life's ambition? Is it to be dangerous to the kingdom of darkness? Or is it to leave spiritual forces of darkness alone that they might leave you alone? What's your ambition in life? If it is your ambition to leave alone and be left alone, then you have almost nothing to do with Christ Jesus. The pattern of your life does not match his in the slightest. Jesus did not spend a single moment of his day outside of the battle against the devil. Neither did Paul, who demonstrates to us Christ and his approach so well. What's your ambition in life? You know, when you finish this life, you stand before God, you're only going to have one regret, and that was not fighting harder. It's the only regret you're going to have. You're not going to regret your career, you're not going to regret your bank account, you're not going to regret your number of houses or whatever it is, you're going to regret one thing and that is not being more dangerous and deadly to the devil's kingdom that's what you're going to regret I want to suggest to you make yourself a soldier make a plan train up and strike a blow against the devil and his kingdom this is what we are called to do Get in the fight. Don't stay on the sidelines of the fight. Try hard to win people for Christ. Use love. Use logic. Use blood, sweat and tears. And make yourself known to Satan. That you are a force contending with him. Strike a blow. And when you do, and as you do, 
you can know that you are fighting on God's side. So here we see the power of God as we come to a close. We've talked about the power of the sons of Sceva, nothing. We've talked about the power of the sons of God, Christ, the only unbegotten son, uh, the only begotten son, and Paul, the adopted son. We see that they have mighty power and that they are known. We come now to talk about the power of God as we see in this passage. We see in this passage an incredible display of the victory of God over satanic powers. Let me just read from verse 16 again to refresh you in that. It says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What an incredible testimony to the power of God over an evil city like Ephesus. That there would be a bonfire in the middle of the city of evil books costing 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I did some uh, research into Ephesus just during the week. Now, I was told that um, Ephesus was a, a city that had the third largest library in the world. And that most of that library, or a good portion of that library, was dedicated to magic arts. This is something that they were uh, just fascinated with and committed to. People were obsessed with that sort of thing. Another thing to know is that one of the most valuable things that a person could own at the time was a book. The paper that it was made of, the binding process... All of this is very, very expensive. The, the time taken to handwrite the book, all books were handwritten, was incredibly time-consuming and therefore made the item very expensive. <clears throat> and all of this, of course, uh, trumped by the value factor of having knowledge at your fingertips. We are used to having knowledge at our fingertips. This was very uncommon throughout history. The thing that made a book so valuable is that it was just there. And you could read and learn and understand. And these people who had come to see the evil of these books, come to see the evil of these works, got rid of them. I bet the devil did not like that. And it was a massive bonfire. 50,000 pieces of silver. Do you know how much that is? <coughs> I'm not 100% sure myself. Nobody really is. But let's... let's uh, work it out, or try to work it out. If one piece of silver was the same as a denarii, it might be more than a denarii, but let's say it's the same as a denarii. A denarii was one day's wages. So 50,000 days of work. In today's uh, economy, that would be about $8 million <coughs> if you're getting paid the minimum wage. So a bonfire worth $8 million with all of these books and so on. This is a revival. Would you agree? 
This is a revival in the city of Ephesus. And when I say revival, I don't just mean a bunch of Christians come together and have a deeply emotional experience. This is a true revival. A revival kicked off by fear and reverence for Christ. That's verse 17. Leading to fear of God. Leading to confession of sin. That's verse 18. Leading to a renouncement of evil practices. That's verse 19. Leading to a progressive growth of the word of God. That's verse 20. That's a revival. And that is what they experienced. And what's at the beginning of that chain? The chain that starts with fear of Christ, fear of God, and repentance, and renouncing practices, and progressive growth. It begins with the sons of Sceva being beaten up by the devil. Isn't that amazing? How God can take the devil's best effort to beat someone, to destroy someone, to harm someone, and turn it into a revival. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is extolled because of what they saw happen to these sons of Sceva. And the devil beating somebody up led to the revival in Ephesus. See, the power of God over the devil is on display in this passage. You might think that you're losing to the devil. You might feel like you take the odd beating from the devil. I want you to know that all of the beatings that God would allow the devil to win or to inflict all speed along the growth of the kingdom of God. God is that sovereign over Satan and his forces that nothing Satan can do, whether he ignores people, whether he attacks people, whether he knows people or doesn't know them, it all is use of God to speed along the progress of his kingdom. And all Satan can do is seethe with anger. Are you in the fight? Are you in this fight? It's a fight that God is going to win. And even the most brutal attacks of Satan will speed on this victory. Are you in this fight? Or are you in a ceasefire with the devil? Are you just on pause? On the sideline, hoping to have a moment of reprieve from the battle. Does the devil know who you are? Does he care that you exist? Are you enough of an irritation to him that would cause your name to be written also in his book of enemies? Make a plan. Strike a blow. Get in the fight. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do just praise you and thank you that you've given us such a plain illustration of your power over satanic forces and such a a plain encouragement for us for us to get involved. Father, we do pray that you would stir up in our hearts a mighty love for Christ Jesus and the work that he's given for us to do, the mighty work that we saw Paul begin and has been carried forward by so many individuals, Jim Jim Elliott being one, and so many others that have taken the fight to the devil, have brought the gospel to the powers of wickedness. Lord, we ask for your grace and your help, for we are so quick to be lazy, sit on the couch, see what's on TV tonight. 
Lord, when there is a battle to be fought and a battle that will be won. And we are called to be part of that. Lord, we thank you for the great examples that we have in this church and many other churches today and throughout history of soldiers for you that are wholly dedicated to the battle against the devil. So many names that the devil knows and hates. Lord, I pray that you would add each of us to that list. That it be a badge of honour for us that we would be hated by the evil one. For your kingdom we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.